Making, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. everybody, my name is Tracy Hayes. I am a director and you may have seen my work on the romantic comedy A Nice Girl Like You starring Lucy Hale, the Amazon Emmy award-winning series Dark Web, uh, the short film Frederick starring uh, Josh Mann and James Morrison, and most recently the feature film Tangled that was released on Amazon this past February. Tracy Hayes, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to dive in today with you. I'm excited as well. And to give this audience a deeper sense of who you are, I'm going to read a very short bio. And like I always say, this is the internet. So if anything seems incorrect or needs to be amended, you just let me know and uh, we'll make sure that gets corrected. Tracy Hayes is a DGA nominated director. Her feature directorial debut, Tangled, based on the popular series by New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Emma Chase, was released on February 3rd, 2022. If I could talk. (laughs) Prior to this, Tracy directed (laughs) Frederick, which premiered at Dances with Films and won 20 awards, including Best Director at the LA Film Awards and Best Picture at the NYC Film Awards. Tracy partnered with Women's Weekend Film Challenge to direct the thriller Disconnected with an all-female cast and crew. It won Tracy Best Director at the Independent Short Awards, Top Shorts, and Indie Short Fest. Her short film, 40-ish, won numerous accolades, including Best Director and Best Short at the International NY Film Festival and official selection at the Rhode Island International Film Festival and showcased at the Short Film Corner at the Festival de An alumna of Chapman University's film program, Tracy was awarded an apprenticeship with Randall Kleiser, who continues to be an active mentor in her career. And that is a mouthful, and that's just a short bio. You've done so, so much more. Um, you started as an art director and production designer, but I want to go back to Tangled while we talked about it. It's um, your latest feature film. It's what you released. It's on Amazon, as you mentioned. It's also on Passion Flicks. And this is an interesting partnership that you have. And, and, and I want to just start there with Passion Flicks. I followed Passion Flicks for a really long time. I don't think the general audience knows exactly what passion flicks is. And I can explain myself. Uh, I have been following Elon Musk since about 2002 or three, like right after PayPal. Right. And I have followed his trajectory. Um, I might've been the first person in my city to buy Tesla. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so because he had, and Tesla in general had such a high chance of failure uh, early, which I don't 
know if people know that, but there was like, they were teetering for a really long time. You, I had people telling me I was just ridiculous for mm. getting it, believing in it, whatever. Anyway, through that, I got to sort of know who Kendall Musk was, which is Elon's brother. And then of course, Tosca Musk as well, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, mm-hmm. who started Passion Flick. So I started following them a long time ago, but I'll stop there. That's enough context. Tracy, tell us what Passion Flicks is. Absolutely. So Passion Flicks is a, a streaming service that that specializes and focuses on turning best-selling romance novels into movies and television shows. Why is this not? Why why hasn't this existed yet? Like, why why is this novel? I don't. I, I shouldn't use the word novel, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's well. There so there's been breadcrumbs, you know. So if you look back at the first really big romance novel that kind of swept, you know, our attention, our swept out, swept our attention up in in uh, would be uh, Twilight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Catherine Hardwick directed the first, uh, the sort of the first of the many films that followed, uh, and that did really well. And and I don't think they were expecting it to do well. And I think from that followed other films. Uh, obviously, Fifty Shades of Grey is another one. Uh, Bridgerton on uh, that's a series that's on Netflix. So I think yep. I think that Tosca obviously saw. You know, she also read Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight and was a big fan of the, of the material. And, you know, as a smart, smart, as a smart businesswoman, I think she realized there was a need for content and, and really putting it back in the power of the women who, you know, wrote the movie that I wrote, that wrote the novel, you know, who directed the film showcasing women in, in their, uh, you know, in a way that, most romance that most romantic comedies or romance films don't focus on. Yeah. I remember the twilight hysteria when that first came out. And if you go back and watch it today, it looks very plain, but I remember watching it um, with a group and thinking, Oh, this is cool. This is going to change storytelling a little bit. And I I think uh, Stephanie Meyer wrote that, right? Is that her name? Stephanie Meyer wrote Twilight, but, um, I remember thinking, here's a woman who's absolutely brilliant, but she was able to write sort of down to the audience that needed to understand it and get story and, and understand Mm -hmm. what she was doing. And you're right. It kind of changed the way, um, certain stories are, are sort of approached. And I think you're right. I think in general, uh, Hollywood is a sort of risk averse. And I think investment in in media in general is a risk averse thing. And Mm -hmm. you need to prove, you need some, someone to take a risk and like prove the concept. Right. And you're right. Twilight totally did that. And then it made the decision really easy for, you know, the, the second to fifth mover sort of advantage people. Right. So really, really good point. Um, How did you meet Tosca? I met Tosca in, I want to say it was about six years ago. I was production designer directing many, many feature films. And I was brought on to art direct their second film, actually the company ever made. So they 
are, they're based in Los Angeles and they had done one of their film prior to that. And I came in to art direct their second film. And what it was, was the film? It was called Afterburn Aftershock. Mm-hmm. It's another, obviously, uh, romance novel mm-hmm. series. Um, a lot of the things they option happen to be series and not just one offs. Mm-hmm. In any case, I met her on that film. It was a whirlwind. Uh, I was just swept up into to getting to know everybody on set. And uh, we, they were really ambitious because they, they had just started the company. They wanted to produce as much content because they're also straight to streaming. So they have their own streaming, their production company and streaming service. Uh, so they decided, you know, to just keep making films almost back to back. I immediately started working on their next film. Uh, so within a span of five years, I, I started art directing and eventually production designed, I want to say, uh, eight films for them that, yeah. that Tosca directed. So all the films that not every passion flicks movie is directed by Tosca. Uh, other women direct other films, depending on what they are and schedule and whatnot. So, but for, for the films that I worked on with passion flicks, uh, I production designed all of her films. That's really that's really interesting for the indie creators, filmmakers um, that are listening to this. And uh, you know, I just found out that I think something like sixty one percent of our audience are women. So that's oh. very apropos. We're recording this a, a day after International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. So for those listening that are filmmakers, how were you able? What was the you know? You know, what was the connecting tissue or fiber between you and the opportunity at Passion Flicks? Was it some film you'd done in the past that she'd heard about? Was it networking? What worked for you? It was networking. I, you know, I take my work very seriously. I'm, you know, I, when I'm production designing, I'm production designing, but I, you know, I think the end goal in, since the beginning was always to direct. And I knew that that was something I wanted to do. And I had been doing it. It wasn't a, discovery during the the time that I was working with Tosca. It was something I was actively pursuing and it was just over the, you know, over the, the many films we worked on together and just opening up about, you know, the, the projects I was working on and what I was doing next and what I was excited about. And, and they, they saw my passion and, and obviously loyalty and, and, visual eye and gave me the opportunity to direct a short. So it's interesting. Not only does passion flicks, uh, they also, they, they, they beyond making TV and, uh, features, they also do, uh, shorts as right. they call them quickies. Quickies, yeah. <laughs> quickies. So I, at the time, uh, there was a couple producers, Gina, Pan- Gina Panabianco was, um, uh, a producer there as well. And we connected, uh, and her and Tosca decided that this was a great idea. And so they really let me, you know, they gave, it was a two day shoot in Los Angeles and it went really well and they put it on the platform. And, um, that was sort of the, the sort of moment, the shift, uh, in terms of seeing my work. And then I continued to production design a number of projects for the company. And then in 20, at the top of 20, one 2021 i was given an opportunity to direct another short for the company and this time it was a romantic it was more of a comedy and prior to that all my work was really 
focused on drama, supernatural thriller, darker tone work. Uh, and I loved the script. It was funny. It was a very cute story. We got to cast older actors, which was something I was really um, advocating for to show sort of not only 20 and 30 year olds, you know, but also what does it mean to be in your fifties and re- find love again. And, mm-hmm. and so that was a one day shoot in Los Angeles which was ambitious considering now we're dealing with COVID and all these things that were in place and we had a lot to do, but we, you know, it came together so well and was such a fun project to work on. And yeah, I mean, that was, and then of course, then Tangled came along. So. How was Tangled different than your previous directorial work? And what is um, a memory? from from set that that will live with you forever oh good question tangled i mean well it was i mean the length i mean it's a feature you know i had i had directed at that point 12 13 shorts and tv and commercial like couple commercials so uh and i had spent you know i had productions and 30 feature films you know like i had been on set but i think to be in that position going into feature, um, it was different because it was a romantic comedy. Um, you know, I had only done two other projects that had comedy elements to it mm-hmm. and it was just, it was really ambitious. It was a super ambitious script. Very, very, a lot to do, um, in a short amount of time and high production value. Everything's wall street, high end, penthouse new york city big (laughs) (laughs) and doing that on a lower budget film you know obviously there's always challenges that come with that um the one of the moments i when i walked into the office location which was our basically the where everything took place the sort of the heart of the movie the way it would look the way it would be a project that the moment when I walked into the finished location uh, with my team, I mean, it was like walking into the movie. It was, you know, I had read the book and knew it. We'd had all these conversations and I just remember walking in going, you know, we had had a lot of last minute changes with these locations and we were so fortunate to end up at this beautiful office space in the middle of downtown Atlanta. And it was stunning. And I was like, this movie is going to far, you know, surpass my expectation in terms of, of really elevating the look and style of the film, I was just blown away. And that's, that's, that's completely credible to my production designer, Karen Novak and my set writer, Mindy Smith, who I've been working with for many years now. So that moment just stands out to me. I mean, there's many other moments that, but that one just, you know, was special. It's very, very good. Thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. I mentioned earlier in your bio that you graduated from Chapman University, cum laude, and um, I can only, you know, dream about having an outcome like that. I was not a great student, even though I felt I could have been. Uh, I was a better student in college than I was in high school. I'll, I'll say that for sure, but certainly not cum laude. But I know that you had, um, you know, it wasn't always that way for you either. Uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit. We do that on this podcast, but I want to take you back to the beginning and what got you into film. I know that you had early troubles with just dyslexia and Mm -hmm. 
and you know that that pushed you and challenged you in, in unique ways. Then you had health issues. Um, mm-hmm. uh, was it three? You had three open heart surgeries by sixteen. Is that correct? I mean, that's remarkable. That's un, that's unbelievable. Was there? It's such a demanding industry. You had these blockades. Have you ever been? sort of near the point of giving it all up, you know, in that moment, how close were you to, Mm. or or did these challenges push you through? How how did you deal with these things in your youth coming into film? Yeah. I mean, I think we all have challenges in our lives that we have to make hard decisions and um, they, you know, I could look at this and go, oh, dyslexia is my strength. Or my, sorry, I can look at this and go, oh, dyslexia is, is a weakness and I can't read and I don't, you know, I don't like school or I, you know, I'm weak because I've had a surgery and I looked at those experiences and they actually are the foundation for what gave me my unique voice as a storyteller to this day. And they were the foundation and the building blocks for giving me uh, my work ethic and my, you know, my empathy and, you know, being able to connect with under underserved audiences. I mean, these are the, these moments in my life that could be seen as a tragedy. I feel like now as an adult, I look back, gave me my voice and I'm so grateful for these experiences because they made me a stronger person. I've met so many people in my life that, for example, had, dyslexia and they'd say Chris don't buy me a book you know I'm dyslexic <laughs> you know, like, but but you seem to have like the opposite attitude personality how was that developed in you uh yeah I mean my parents I feel my parents were such um advocates for my creativity and my curiosity and they encouraged me and gave me a very safe space to learn because I was homeschooled when I was, uh, until I was, uh, went to high school essentially because of my learning challenges with dyslexia mm-hmm. and that instead of being bullied at school or being made fun of or put down, I was given the safe space to be creative, to express myself, to, uh, you know, go on field trips, you know, midweek, uh, go to the local theater and watch a play and write about it or, or, or have just that extra layer of, um, confidence, you know, where I was able to, obviously I had friends and people that I, you know, I was very active child, but I think just having that support system through my parents just gave me that extra confidence. Yeah. I, uh, homeschooled my oldest daughter Oh wow! for one year and it almost killed me. <laughs> so <laughs> It's not easy. (laughs) It was so hard. It was so hard. But here's what's crazy. She went back to school the next year, like normal school, I guess, whatever, or the school as we think of it. And she was so far ahead of her classmates and it gave her enormous confidence, enormous confidence. So I would tell anyone that has kids, uh, of course, this is a parenting podcast, but I would tell anyone, give homeschooling a try one year. And especially if your kid is suffering from a low self-esteem, like, like my daughter was at the time, um, 
it gives your kids something to hang their head on. Mm. Like, oh, I'm better at math and English than you could be one attitude. Another mm. attitude could simply be, I'm available to help you now because, because I understand it. I understand the subject. Right. And so, yeah, totally relate to what you're saying and, and dig it. Was there a movie? I know you went to, you're super smart and you were in junior college at 16 uh, and you had that theater program that, that mm-hmm. really got you into film and got you excited about it. But was there a movie before that, that you said, Oh my God, how are they doing this? I want to be in film for the rest of my life. You name it. Yeah, there was, there was, there was um, two moments that stand out to me um, in terms of that. I think I was eight or nine mm-hmm. and I, my parents, we would go to the matinee uh, theater, like matinee theater in, in our, in our town um, a lot. And one of the first theatrical productions I ever saw was the wizard of Oz. You grew up in and San Jose, right? I grew up in the Bay area. Yeah. Okay, in San cool, Jose. Cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, I grew up with my, my mom taking the kids to matinees in San Jose, downtown theatrical uh, performances. And I was taken by the Wizard of Oz in the story <laughs> behind this young girl who was going on this adventure and the friends that she met and the quirky sort of, you know, musical numbers that happened. And then my mom told me after we finished the watching the play that there was a movie and I I ran home, I rented the VHS tape and that was it. I watched the moment that Dorothy went from black and white into color. I was captivated with visual storytelling and I, I didn't know how they did it. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know that I wanted to be a filmmaker. All I knew is that I thought, wow, being what a cool visual world friendship story. And so that was what caught my sort of attention when I was very young. And then um, in terms of wanting to be a filmmaker, that I did didn't really become something that I knew existed until I was about 12 or 13 when I watched the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings uh, for all of our nerdy friends out there. <laughs> um, and I was really the, there wasn't very much material available about behind the scenes or video, you know, like that feature ads, like that wasn't a thing. Um, and I watched it and was, then I, then it clicked and I'm like, Oh, this is, this is a sort of behind the curtain look at what it means to make a movie. And then it, that was it for me. I was like, I'm absolutely, I've, I want to be a, a director. I want to be a filmmaker. And that was, that was it. <laughs> Do you know the bonus CD you have to get is from the movie Tenet, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. That has oh. to be the best bonus disc I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of bonus discs. Uh, get get Tenet on Blu-ray just for the bonus disc. If you're interested oh. in how films are made, that is that is freaking fascinating. So there's a little wow, I'll, I'll yeah, put a little, nugget, a little nugget right there. <laughs> Two movies: Wizard of Oz and mm-hmm. uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Those are two movies that were colorful and attention grabbing and, and exciting as a kid that you grew up and found out were profound (laughs) in -hmm. their meaning, like what the story was really about. Right. Coded in 
all these colors and characters and things. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, <laughs> there's the movie we saw when we were kids. And then there's the movie as we understand it as adults, they, they do a, those, those two movies do a great job with that. Yeah. Um, of course this audience knows my, my love is the princess bride. So that's, that's the one that, that got me. I yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's the greatest. It's the greatest. Um, the bulk of your work, we talked about this a little earlier, was as a production designer and an art director. Um, where do you think your skill and affinity for how a particular film or short looks uh, to the eye comes from? Like, how did you develop that skill and become so proficient and, and in demand for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I go back attributed to my dyslexia. I spent, you know, I would go to the library, check out books, sit in the corner and just look at the images on the pad. I wasn't reading the book. I was just going through and finding the pictures and, and like being able to figure out the story just by these images. I think that was sort of the beginning of how I started to visually think in pictures in terms of that skill. And then I do think there's something that's just natural about it. I think there's um, just something innately in in the way I see things in terms of visualizing a space and being able to see its full potential. Uh, I don't think I really learned that. I just think I just, I think some people, I don't know. I just think some people have it and some people maybe don't, but I think, you know, obviously there's things you can learn. And I think obviously I learned about, color theory and, you know, framing and, you know, the history of cinema and period pieces and how to, how to layer a world and how to, how to really make it inviting and how to make it feel lived in and what makes, you know, what really makes something visually great. And I think obviously Mm. I had practiced at that, you know, my, my parents were very, you know, I would, go to the flea markets on the weekend and I would buy a bunch of old antiques. And as far as I knew, they were treasures, but they was probably junk, you know, but they let me kind of, you know, decorate the house and re-landscape the yard. And like, I was very interested in just being visually creative as a young person. And I think that that just naturally transitioned into when I went to film school and then really came into my own with my mentors like Larry Paul, who production design Blade Runner and Back to the Future and Mel Cooper, who was a set decorator on Seinfeld for many years. And these people, these mentors who kind of gave a new perspective about how to layer. And there's so, I mean, so much (laughs) to learn about design. Yeah. We, we don't get anywhere alone. And that certainly uh, can be said for you as well. Um, And we're going to talk about some of these influences because, because you get, so uh, fortunate and I don't really want to use that word because you earned it, but it's, it it was, you know, there is a degree of timing that comes with everything. So you have some Mm. really great people that, that taught you key things about this business as you sort of used your own ambition to, to move forward. Um, And Mm. by the way, before I forget Cinequest, great film festival in San Jose. Everybody should yeah. go to CineQuest once in their life. They have this awesome theater they watch. You can yes. watch the films in. It's a story. That was the first festival awesome. I ever went to. Wow. Really? Yeah. What yeah. year? 
I don't even remember. All I know, I was very young. <laughs> All I know is one day I want to screen. I would like to come full circle. I want to put my feature, my next feature into that festival and, and be able to go back. I have not had a film screen there before. When you do that, please text me. Let me know what's up. <laughs> and yes. And me and Nick will fly out there for that. That'll because we we missed that place. We want to go back uh, to CineQuest. That's love, love, that would love, that, love, love. that would be awesome. Um, yeah. For this audience, there is a difference between production design and art direction. Which one shows up in the film to to the viewer the most, in your opinion? Which one means the most to the quality outcome of the film? It's it's sort of like, it's two parts of the body. It's like you're, you know, it, it's not separate. Mm-hmm. So production design and art directing, they're married together. They're, they're achieving the same vision. They're just essentially a different, they're in charge of a different aspect within the same department. So it's not that they're necessarily, one is more visible than the other. It's sort of this partnership where, the art director and the production designer are working together to take the director's vision uh, from concept and illustrations and, you know, overheads and, you know, set design and right. uh, to the final finished product. So um, it's sort of one and the same, I would it's, say. It's kind of like if it's done well, you wouldn't notice that they are different at all. They would, there would be a symbiosis there when you're watching every, sh- every scene, every shot. Uh, they sort of live together. Is that fair to say? Um, I would say, yeah. I mean, it's 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 sort of like the camera. It's sort of like the DP and the first AC. I mean, they're the same department. So right. I don't think that there's any separation between what the end product looks like. It's just who's maybe on set more, or who's interacting with what person more. Ah, but they're not they're not necessarily sep- They're not separate. They're very much in the same the same camp. So. That's that a very good, together. <laughs> very good way to put it. I, I am curious, you know, cause people are, people are hypocrites because you know, even in the creative world and we all are, it's okay. I'm a very tolerant person. We'll say to someone, Oh, I'd never put you in a box, but as human beings, we do kind of like to define things. We do like to understand them before we approach them. And I know how difficult that is as a creative that wears a lot of different hats. And I don't mean that literally. In this case, I mean it figuratively, figuratively because I know literally you do wear a lot of hats. But <laughs> um, how hard was it for you to like tell these other professionals that have reached a professional benchmark that, hey, I'm not a production designer anymore. I'm not doing art direction. I'm going to direct films now. Were there obstacles that you faced transitioning from that? from one to the other? Absolutely. And I, I wish, you know, I could spend, we could spend the rest of the, our time <laughs> here talking about that. I mean, frankly, cause I think there's, there's no one path forward. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people um, have aspirations and have goals and dreams and then to actually actualize it and figure out how to take that next step is terrifying. You know, I mean, it was for me, I think, I was afraid people would lose their respect and not take me seriously because, you know, Oh, how can you be a director? Everybody wants to be a director, you know, you production design, you know, what have you done? That would, 
would merit that. And so I think I was, you know, afraid for a while, just the transition and when to make the transition and when was the right time, you know, that's, I, there was no roadmap or, you know, guidebook (laughs) on how to do it in the most professional way. And I think I had to let go of that fear and just ultimately I had to be ready because if I wasn't ready to go on that journey and take that risk on myself, you know, nobody else would have. So I think I started, you know, obviously that was the always the end goal. And I was always ambitious, always trying to learn and, and elevate my own work and what I did. And so going to film school, you know, I was directing many short films, you know, post-graduating, I was directing as much as I could whenever I could. And it wasn't, you know, the biggest hurdle was the feature, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, I'm a first time feature director. And there was a lot of false starts along the way. There were other projects that were supposed to happen before Tangled and they just, you know, so close to that first feature and, and it didn't happen. And so, you know, it was sort of that, just keep going, don't put your head down. And I think really what ultimately was the biggest help in making that transition was working with a career coach who Hmm. was my support system and, and sort of help guiding me and, and, you know, reaching out and finding my agent and, you know, sending a million query letters and sort of just finally saying no to production design and just saying, Hey, I'm directing and, and being able to, to say that and be confident about it was such a, uh, a, a journey to get to that moment, but I'm so glad I did it. And when I did, it, it was so important. And, you know, because if you don't say no and you don't leave the time for what you ultimately want to do, you're never going to have that time in the decade went by like that. You know, I, I never had time yeah. to, to, you know, I mean, obviously I was developing and I was driving myself crazy and wasn't probably the healthiest person because I wasn't sleeping and I was, you know, working on my days off because I love what I do. But I think, you know, production designing movies is a huge responsibility. You know, you're on the clock, tw- you know, basically for three, four, however many months. So I wasn't able to really dig in and, and give myself the time I needed till I finally made that decision, you know, and it's huge. I'm yeah. really glad I did. Yeah. So much to dig into there. You said a few <laughs> things that, that no one else has really touched on before in your position earlier in the conversation, you used the word loyalty and I, that just jumped out to me like, wow. Okay. So loyalty played a role in making sure you could get that directing gig. And, and now you say career coach. And there are so many career coaches that give the field of career coaching a bad name. But when mm-hmm. you are good at it, it's incredibly effective. How did you mm-hmm. make the decision as a creative, which is so hard for creative people to do, to hand over a piece of your life to a career coach and kind of fall to your knees a little bit and say, mm-hmm. I need your help. I, I will say I've, I've always been a curious person and, and was always the first to admit when I maybe didn't know something or needed help with something, but this was another level. I didn't realize what a career coach did. I didn't know they existed. I knew what therapy was and I'm thinking, well, what do they do? Are they <laughs> a therapy for my past? And the best way I can put it is a career coach 
is a therapist for your future and the goals you're setting. In my case, I specifically started working with a career coach who works in the business as the producer, as a talent agent, who understands the business, who's actively working in it. And that to me is so key as, a, as somebody who also works in the business to work with somebody who understands and has those connections to give me actual sound advice. Um, I had happened, I happened to know this person for a while and we just started talking one day, I think this might've been two years ago. And I, I, she started explaining to me what she did. And I was like, Oh, that sounds really interesting. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I really need the help. You know, how do I write a query letter? How do I, you know, how do I best position myself when talking to producers uh, and talent managers and a potential investor and, you know, how, you know, what should my bio say? What should I put on IMDB? You know, there's so many things, little, little details and how to best position and set yourself up for success that I hadn't maybe thought of or realized was, was until we started working together. So really it started at the top of 2020 when everything kind of went quiet and uh, I was in the middle of art directing a movie and we got shut down and I kind of had to spend time with myself and be honest and really reevaluate what I was doing. I was exhausted. I had done back-to-back projects and uh, out of that time sort of reevaluating things, that's when I started working with my career coach and um, yeah, made the a big rest, difference. The, the rest is, the rest is history. You said something else <laughs> there that is so true. And I learned it early in life in the most unusual way, but it's one of these things where it's like, if you're going to, burn who you were so you can rise up as a phoenix as something new the people that want to stop you from doing that are the people closest to you that have gotten very comfortable with who you were mm-hmm. and when you start that process uh, it puts them on on alert mm-hmm. and it puts them on deck to say well what am i doing to change my life to better myself <laughs> and, and, and without them even knowing it it's not malicious they would do little mm. things to stop you. I remember being, mm. I might've been 19 or 20 and um, I just blown up. I just gotten, I'd stopped playing sports. I was like 255. It's like the heaviest I'd ever been in my life. And for those who don't know my physical sort of stature, I'm like six foot three and I like to be 225 usually, but I was big and I didn't even know it. This is how insidious weight gain is like, like, I just like my girlfriend at the time and my mom were like, uh, yeah, you are kind of big right now. And I was like, am I really? And I didn't really even realize it. So here's what I did. I wrote down everything that I thought was making me fat, everything that I ate every day. And it turned out that everything that I was eating that I thought was making me fat was either meat or soda. So I cut out Cokes, Pepsis, any kind of soda. And I cut out, it ended up being meat because I was eating like Whoppers, which I'll get back to you in a second and fried chicken and just like, like the grossest stuff you could possibly eat. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be healthy. So sure enough, I told my friends, Hey, I'm not eating this stuff anymore. I'm lose weight. And I remember my two best friends drove me through the drive through of a Burger King 
and they ordered a Whopper for me. And I was like, I don't want that. I don't want that. They said, you want, you know, you want that. You know, you want that. They were tempting me. And I was like, I really don't want it. Like, and they were frustrated. Like take the Whopper off, take the Whopper off. They wanted me to be the person that I was because if I change, then maybe our rank and file would change. Maybe our hierarchy and our friendship would change. I'd become enlightened in a new way. I lost 35 pounds in 60 days, I think. Maybe 35 pounds in 45 days. It was something outrageous. Wow. People people thought I was sick, uh, but I wasn't. I had just gotten healthy and I changed. I burned who I was and came back as that Phoenix. So I'm so mm. proud of you for doing that. And it takes a very, very big person to admit they, they need a helping hand in life. Um, mm. Now, the irony of this whole thing, Tracy, is that I've had a lot of directors come on this program and say, as a director, it's really great to be a jack of all trades, to kind of know what every person on set is doing a little bit and to be able to do a little bit of that. And then I've had other directors say, you know, to be an auteur, to be great, you have to be singularly focused. So what's your opinion? Is it better for a director to wear, to wear multiple hats or to be focused, singularly focused? I would, I would actually split the difference. I think it's important as a director, as you are the head of the department, you're the captain of the ship, you're the, the drill sergeant, you're the mother, you're the all of the above. I think you need to come from a place of knowing where these people come from. And I think it's important to understand and value the work that all your department heads are doing, understanding it's like creating a common language, how you speak to actors. You need to also understand how to speak to your cinematographer, how to speak to your production designer, how to speak to your composer. That doesn't mean you have to go and learn how to play piano or <laughs> learn how to become a cinematographer. I think obviously there's plenty of people that, that, that sounds like it would be a fun thing to learn. But at the end of the day, I think to communicate the most efficiently and effectively, you have to understand what they do. That doesn't mean you have to actually wear all those hats in the physical aspect of production. I mean, there's, I've worked with people that have worn multiple hats in production. Um, but I don't, I think when you're on set, your focus as a director should solely be on directing. Um, you know, there are actors that also direct their own projects. There are, there are actors who write their own movie and produce it and act in it. You know, there's lots of different combinations. And I think you have to be honest with yourself and, and not spread yourself too thin and be able to deliver your vision in a clear and effective way. And if you get distracted by wearing more than one hat, then, then you have, to, I think it's important to be honest with yourself. Um, so coming from that place of knowing, I think it's important, but when it comes to actually implementing what you're doing, I think it should just be focused on directing. Thank you for that. That's very, very good insight. You are the director of a handful of absolutely killer short films. And you're welcome. And that is not lip service at all. I would not be mad at anyone in this audience if they left the podcast right now and went to (laughs) tracyhayes.com, T-R-A-C-I hayes.com and watched the short film Frederick. And then come back, of course, come back to the podcast, but... I would not be mad if you left right now to go watch Frederick. That was really great. I have no idea how you got the artwork in there. That artwork was unbelievable. The way you set up the twist at the end was fantastic. Uh, I know you didn't write it. I know Josh, uh, Josh Mann wrote it, but I thought that was my only beef is that I wish Josh would have let 
can I say this and not ruin the movie? Um, oh, spoiler. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. I just, I just wish he would have let the outcome be what it was instead of having mm-hmm. that last scene where he comes back mm-hmm. because there was this, there was this almost black swanish feel to it. Uh, Aronofsky's oh, black swan where it's like, yeah. Oh, he wanted, he manipulated that whole thing so that he could be remembered because mm-hmm. the thing that I most relate to in that movie is the need to be remembered. I mean, mm. if I'm being really honest, I'm, I am hyper aware and conscious of the fact that I am recording something that will be evergreen in time. Mm. Right. That's just, that's just something I think all artists kind of share. Yeah. Mm. Whether they want to admit it or not, it's up to them. And so that one really touched home, but you also did a short called 40 ish that Nicole Stewart wrote and I thought sort of in honor of the month of March, which is the month we're recording this in, um, we talk a little bit about women's representation in film and the film industry a little bit, just mm-hmm. touch on it a tad. Um, that film is about ageism. Are there other barriers for women outside of, of ageism and let's say ethnicity, which is another one that comes up a lot that we mm-hmm. don't think about that's pervasive in your opinion? In terms of, of just being an actor, like, or just in general with the film business? Just in the film business, yeah, sorry. Broad stroke it, like, if you're a right. woman in film, are there unique barriers that the women listening, female filmmakers listening to this podcast should look out for as they go out into the world and, and try to do this work? I would say, you know, as as... As a as a woman storyteller, obviously I I think every I think everyone has been through a challenging time, regardless of you know experience or how many films. I think we've all been met with some form of obstacles. Uh, I do I do feel that there's a need for the gatekeepers to bring in new fresh voices and focus on material that we so desperately want and need, but don't have a opportunity or a platform or a way to, to be able to show that and produce those kinds of storytelling. I think that's changing right now. I think it's been changing, uh, especially since the, the me too movement. I do think there's a lot of, work that still needs to be done. I think Gina Davis is doing an incredible job with her, um, with her organization. That would be a place I would encourage anyone to follow and support. She's very transparent about numbers and what people are actually watching, what people actually want to watch, not just lip service or, or sort of, you know, it's not imaginary. I mean, they're hard numbers. They're actual data that she's taken the time to collect and she's a champion for, you know, you know, women's voices of all backgrounds. So I think ultimately though, I will say, I don't think I've ever watched an interview with a male director where the conversation is, what does it mean to be a male director? I think it's Mm -hmm. so interesting that it's, turned in a way where obviously there's opportunity and I'm grateful that we're putting more attention on women and diversity and 
not just, you know, black, white, Latino, every, all of the above, you know, indigenous, all of those things, just grants, opportunities. I think it's important, but I would say I want to be, be remembered as a filmmaker with great work, not a female filmmaker. And I think that the difference is just looking at the work and being proud of the work, regardless of background, ethnicity, gender, age. I think that is my goal and hope with the way that we're going in the business. I love that. That is fantastic. That's exactly how I feel about the world and art in general. So you, you nailed that for me and look, you might get your wish. I mean, this whole, <laughs> this, 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 this whole movement with, uh, that's happened in the last few years politically is all because men aren't graduating from college anymore and women are, in a, a, are mm. at like double the rate. So, so the men are getting dumber. Women are getting smarter getting more opportunities, getting paid more. Number Mm -hmm. one growth for entrepreneurship in America is black women. And you might just find out that somebody gets on an interview and says, what does it feel like to be a male director? eh? How did you even get here? (laughs) What an interesting, like what a way to come full circle. I, I think that's very, it's very telling. All I know is that, you know, as women, we also need to band together and be kind to one another and support one another. And, and also, you know, I think there was this weird competitiveness because there were so few opportunities for women. And I, and I, um, I just hope like I've worked with some incredible women. I've been so fortunate on all, all, all spectrums with every department head. And, um, those are the people that are supporting me now, obviously men are too, but it's just nice to know, that the support is there because there's an identity. There's something that we can identify with, you know, going into new things. I totally agree. I I am curious though, and this is a bit related to 40 ish, your film 40 ish that you did with Nicole Stewart. Um, What is the answer to, to ageism considering that Hollywood markets to 19 to 24 year old men? Well, that's changing. I mean, you look at any of Nancy Myers' films. I mean, she's telling these fantastic films about women in their 40s, 50s, 60s. I think it comes down to the answer is that the audience, you know, obviously there are niche audiences for every kind of thing you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But as I think with which eight, with there, it just comes down to what's being written and what's being like what are what are producers what are studios buying and what are they actually making and i think it comes down to you know there is there are stories out there for everyone at every age and i think it should be you know more accessible and you know i think unfortunately there are a lot of old hollywood mentality and mindset that is still brewing i've run into it on occasion and i think there's an old mentality, a new mentality. And I think the more we can talk about it, like we are now, and the more we can make art about it, like we did with 40 ish, I think the closer we come to the answer, which is the more we see of ourselves, the more we can identify and become, you know, stronger versions of ourselves and, and champions of our own work. So I think 
that was the whole reason behind making the film, frankly, was to show, I mean, Nicole went through all those were not, that was based on true light. That was, those were things she actually <laughs> went through, which right. is crazy. Right. I'm like, how is that? I mean, that wasn't like a hundred years ago. It was, you know, <laughs> this stuff actually happened, you know, in the last 15 you know, years and you're just going, man. Yeah. I, the thing I took away <laughs> from it is that women do it to women. They do. It's unfortunate. And that was what I was speaking to earlier about supporting each other in the work. I mean, I wouldn't lie and say that I've not run into that myself. I mean, thankfully it hasn't been a lot, but I've seen it. And, um, I don't quite, that's their own beef that they have to figure out. That's not, you know, if, if they have self-conscious about something or who knows what the issue, who knows what it might be. But yes, unfortunately that is something that happens. It's likely a false <laughs> sense of power. I always think mm. of it like that. It's like, Hey, I made it into this spot. I'm in a position to make or break a position or, or get, you know, you either get paid or don't get paid through me. Mm. And yeah. I'm going to kind of make this call on you because I wouldn't hang out with you or whatever the well, ridiculous reasoning is. Or like being, being insecure. Or just about knowing your own who worth. their buyer is too. Maybe. I don't know. Yes. And insecure yeah. about your own worth. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, like, wouldn't you want to be proud of that person? Like, I don't know people. Right. I mean, regardless of gender, I think it's just, it comes down to like, there's insecure, shitty people. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> You're just like, all right, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Speaking of the direct opposite of insecure, shitty people, can you talk to me about uh, what Martha Coolidge's mentorship has meant to your career in life? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Absolutely. She, I have to, I have to give a little shout out to her. Um, just because she um, just had a film come out called I'll Find You. Okay. It's in theaters right now. It's a World War II beautiful love story. I had a chance to preview it. And uh, she has been nothing but a solid rock of just endless advice and support since the moment I met her back at Chapman, actually. Uh, she was what they call a filmmaker in resident at the time. And they would, Chapman would bring in guests, industry professionals and sit down and have these dinners, which were like the best kept secret at the school at the time, because you got, you were a college student eating steak and drinking wine with awesome people. And I'm like, how does no one know about this? So I took full advantage of it because I got to meet some incredible people, including Martha and her mentorship and growth and friendship over the years have, you know, I think she told me, this and I'll never forget. She said, you will never stop having to prove yourself in this industry. So be as prepared as possible and do your homework. And I, that stuck with me. And she, you know, I called her, I called her when I was making Tangled, I called her on the phone. I'm like, what would you do in this situation? Or like, so it, 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 it's never stopped. Like she's always had this fire in her. Um, and I'm so, um, it's just amazed at the work she's done continues to do, you know, and teaching and directing and balancing a life and being a mom. I mean, Oh my goodness. Anyway, I could talk about her for a long time, but yeah, she's been still as a great friend. Kudos to Martha. She sounds like a superwoman, and I will definitely check out, <laughs> uh, 
I'll find you. I am a sucker for a good love story. For those listening, what is a good way to find a mentor? What's the, what's the best way? Mm. I think it starts with having the right attitude and being open with yourself and honest with yourself to ask for help and truthfully meaning it. Right. And like wanting, wanting that. And I think, um, mentors can come in lots of ways. It could be as simple as watching a movie that you like and going on IMDb pro or LinkedIn, or, or there's myriad of ways to find maybe the director's agent. It could be as simple. I remember watching a fantastic documentary about dyslexia. never had seen it before. And I emailed the filmmaker after watching the movie because I was so thankful that they took the time to explain it to me. Here I am in my, you know, this was a while ago, late, like late, late 20s, early 30s, finally understanding what it is I have. And so I took the time and I reached out to them. It could be as simple as just taking the time to email or find someone's contact information of someone you respect. You don't even have to know them. Now there's the other route, which would be someone in your life that can introduce you to somebody that happens to have a connection with them or it could be mine was through film school. You know, the, these professors have a lot of wealth of knowledge and are more than happy to give advice. Um, and I've kept in contact with everybody, frankly, that has, you know, there's also mentorship programs, especially for women. Uh, women in film has mentorship programs. You know, every year they, they work with industry professional and, you know, obviously you have to apply and it's this whole thing, but there's, there are opportunities that are, obviously out there for women and not, you know, for men too. I mean, I think there's, um, it just comes down to asking for help. Having the courage to step out on faith, ask for help and, and, and not be afraid of, of what mm-hmm. comes next. And it's interesting because, um, yeah. I think people who have achieved a thing want to share how they achieved a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's part of that person's legacy. Uh, mm-hmm. I know for me, um, just as a callback to what you said about those dinners, we hold a sort of unmarketed off the book secret filmmaker dinner once a month um, right here. Oh. And it's, it's amazing. Everybody networks with each other. We screen a film. Maybe it's a film of someone who's there um, and we just talk and, and the mentorship can happen in this most sort of natural and, yeah. and cool way. Also advisory to the board for women in film and television here in Nashville. So if there's anybody in Nashville listening that wants that mentorship, reach out to me and I'll find a woman that has been doing it Love for that. a long time and will and we'll mentor you. Um, Love that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, I can mentor you. Tracy can mentor you. Just ask. Women in film yeah. can mentor you. It, there's, yeah. there's all kinds of ways to do it. Um, mm-hmm. What are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and who did they come from? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I said this earlier, but I'm going to say it again with Martha, Martha. Um, but oh, please. The, two, the, the two best pieces of advice that I've gotten in my career thus far, the first is from Martha Coolidge. She said, you will never stop having to prove yourself in this industry. So be as prepared as possible and do your homework. And that has stood, that has really resonated with me and something that I took to heart and prepare for everything, not just film meetings, generals, all of the above. Um, And then the second piece of advice uh, I actually read in a book this past year by Matthew McConaughey called green lights. Oh, I love green lights. 
fantastic autobiography. And he said, it just really, really just out of anything, I really took to heart this, which was, you have to know who you are before you know what you want to say. Knowing who you are is the basis for where everything comes from. It's powerful. And I, I, yeah, knowing, yeah. And knowing who you are. Before you know what to say, what to say. Yeah. I, I loved green lights and it's even better on audiobook um, because you, because he, Matthew's narrating it himself. So you get a sense of these stories and the way he's telling mm-hmm. the story is really great. There's a guy that I came up with in film named Casey Fuller. You guys can find him on Instagram and just search for Casey Fuller. And he does snippets from green lights in former Matthew McConaughey characters. It's hilarious. Mm. He does a really good. That's really interesting. Yeah. I was okay. Yeah. It's awesome. (laughs) He does a few of it. You have to check it out. Uh, Shout out to Casey Fuller uh, for doing that. Um, Who are the creatives that you most admire Tracy and, and want to emulate as a director? And what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that sets them apart? Hmm. People I admire. Uh, there's just, there's a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I'm going to start. There's been a few filmmakers that I've been just absolutely blown away with as of recent. Uh, obviously, throughout my career, many people have inspired and influenced my work. Uh, most recently, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée is mm. a fantastic director. Unfortunately, he passed away at the top of the, this year, but he left behind a legacy that is truly beautiful work from Dallas Buyers Club to Wild to Big Little Lies to Sharp Objects. And he just has an immediacy to his storytelling that was truly just breathtaking and drew me in right away and something I hadn't quite seen done in that way before, especially his editing. He also edits all of his own work, which I admire. Um, so, uh, so that was, you know, as of recent, he's really been somebody that I've just really looked up to and watched his work over and over again. Um, and it's also beyond filmmakers too. I've been inspired by, other other people in my life, like Larry Moss, he's an acting coach. Mm-hmm. He uh, has coached some of the most prolific actors that you we all know of. And he um, just has inspired me in how I work with actors. I mean, he was the biggest game changer and uh, in terms of how I talk to actors, frankly. I mean, he was... I started auditing his workshops probably seven, eight years ago and in person. And I've never been the same. I mean, he's just truly transformed how I break down a script and how I talk to actors. And I've met some incredible people through these workshops. Uh, and then, I mean, there's some, uh, my favorite composer, uh, Ludovico Inaudi has inspired 
he, he's an Italian pianist and has inspired me in the work I've done. Um, I've used his, I mean, his songs, I would say most, most recently were in, um, uh, they were part of the soundtrack. They've been in a couple soundtracks for films. Um, okay. So he also composes from, from film and television, but he started out, he does concerts. I've been to a couple in person. I mean, so emotional. I mean, like to the point where I'm just totally emotionally and crying because there's something just so beautiful. And I can't even describe, I think it's just a, especially in person, just like feeling the melody and, and what he's trying to say through his work and the simplicity of it. And just being there on the stage with just his piano, it's so raw and emotional. And um, yeah, so he's, he's, he's been a huge inspiration to how I think about music. You have to send me that. Send me like, um, Absolutely. Just, just send me the name and I'll take care of the rest, you know. I know. It's such a, it's such a, I couldn't even spell for you. I can say it, but his name is a little challenging to, to spell. Um, well, I, yeah, I just didn't again, want to be like the parents who are like, what does this mean? It's like, uh, it's called Google. Just go Google that. You'll figure ah, it out. I didn't want to be that guy to ask you to do all the work. No, no, no. It's I all good. I mean, and I would say, um, goes without saying, I've been so impressed with Catherine Bigelow's work over the years, oh, yeah. um, just with Zero Dark Thirty and um, just all the things that she's done um, I with Hurt Locker. I, I mean, she just was a true inspiration um, to knowing it's possible to achieve things as, as a woman and um, just be able to make great films and you know, not apologize for it and just be such a rock. And, um, yeah, she's, she's been quite, quite an inspiration. So those are just a few, obviously there's, there's many more. And it's such a tough question because you, you kind of on the, it's kind of like being asked, what are your favorite three movies? And you just can't, you never can name three. Oh, I know. There's always like, there's always like (laughs) five third places. Well, everybody knows they're number one. Everybody knows yes. the first one, but on the third one, you're like, uh, there's like seven Todd for third. That's kind of the deal. <laughs> what, what, what's number one for you though? Back to the future. Oh, wow. I have a giant back to the future, like coffee table book. I have a poster you can't see on the wall right now. Yeah. I'm obsessed. I mean, it started, I mean, honestly, it started with Larry Paul, um, who production designed the film and, and I, I watched the movie and fell in love and the rest was, you know history <laughs> it's, so. it's brilliant it's brilliant it's timeless even though the place they travel to is now in the past based on yes. current day which is crazy but um yeah it's just a timeless it's a timeless movie it's it's fantastic one of my faves and my favorite mm-hmm. thing about the coffee table book is there's a photo and if you kind of bend it this way or that way like left or right like michael j fox disappears in the picture oh fun yeah it's really super cool i'll show it i'll send you a picture of it it's, it's awesome i love i love that yeah, yeah. no so, such a such a fan yeah, of yeah. robert zemeckis <laughs> well i am a big fan of you tracy this this has been just a blast and i've learned so much you're so inspiring uh i know i'm going to have a brilliant remainder of my day having spoken to you this morning so oh good yes absolutely tracy can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media on the internet or where they can even see some of your work yes 
You can find my work by going to my website, which is tracyhayes.com. It's not spelled traditionally, thanks to my parents. <laughs> so it's, it's, I'll spell it. It's Tracy with an I and then H-O-Y-S.com. Uh, and I'm also on IMDb with my, my name. Um, I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook with the same name, you know, just my first and last name. Pretty easy. Uh, find my work. Uh, some of it's on my website and available. Some of it's still in festivals. So uh, obviously it's not open to the public yet. Uh, but Tangled is something you can watch on Passionflix or Amazon. Uh, and uh, where else can you see the work? Um, short, of the, short of the day, the couple of my projects are on there. And funny enough, as of today, which is insane. So as of today, um, Omleto, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong. Omleto is re-releasing Frederick on their platform. It has like 4 million subscribers. It's supposedly being released like as we speak on their platform today. That's amazing. I know it's going to do really well. That is an excellent short film. And... We'll end on this. I know you're a massive history nerd, which is just another point of connection between me and you. We, we both love that. And you were able to go to one of the most historic places in the world, uh, Paris. And, and then you went from Paris and marked that off your bucket list and went to England, Spain, and Italy. Uh, all historic places, by the way, when you go there, the depth of history is so beyond mm. what we have in the States because we're such a young country by comparison. Yeah. What else is on your bucket list since you marked those off? Oh, um, I've never been to Hawaii, which is shocking. Unbelievable. I don't even believe um, I don't believe you right I now. Know. You said it. I still don't believe you. I, that's somewhere I really wanted to go. <laughs> I... <laughs> Right. What's wrong with me? Um, I actually want to go back to Italy and visit other parts. Like, uh, obviously, I went to Malfi, but I've never, um, I want to go more inland. Um, I want to see um, uh, other parts of, of the country. And uh, I want to go to Greece, is somewhere I'm really interested in going to. Beautiful. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, those are. Um, the top three and then and then switzerland has always been interesting to me so we'll see um yeah traveling is such a great way to learn i'm such i want to soak up as much about culture and you know through that through through their through learning about their cultures obviously as history as a history buff from one to another you learn more about humanity and what people what people like and and yeah. You know, traditions. I love it. To me, it improves your eye. You know, it's, it just makes it makes you even better as a director and as a creative. And there's a show, I think it's on Showtime now, but it started on CNN and it's okay. called Finding Italy with Stanley Tucci. I think that's the name of it. Anyway, the whole thing is Stanley Tucci. Oh, yeah. Just forget the other part of the name if I have that wrong. Just look up Stanley Tucci. Not only is oh, he a style god. But but the food is unbelievable. You you will want to go to Italy immediately after watching this show. Oh my gosh! I I I'm I, I've heard of it, so I will definitely put that on my list. I know I've like got these little. Make sure to send you. <laughs> so I'll make sure to send you uh, a couple of things we talked about today. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's been uh, 
you know, such a pleasure to be able to share just my experience. And I, and I hope that that's, you know, someone will have taken something away from this and, and maybe helped or inspired or made them think about something and, and, you know, help them on their journey, you know, as I'm still on mine. I know that's going to be the case, Tracy. And I just really appreciate getting to know you better. And I hope we are able to stay in touch from this day yeah. forward. Everyone listening, go out right now, watch Tangled. Uh, it released this year in February. It's on Amazon. It's on Passion Flicks. It stars Catherine Hughes and Josh Pless. If I pronounced his last name wrong, I'm sorry, but I think I got it. You didn't. You uh, <laughs> Tangled right now. Go watch her short films, 40-ish, and Frederick and many, many others right now. Tracy, this has been incredible. And uh, I would wish you luck, but I, I know you don't need it. <laughs> well, it's good to hear it, though, you know, because it's it's all about hard work, luck, timing. I think all of it is is attributed to the work. And the next step, the next, the next project for me. So beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well said. All right, Tracy, <laughs> this has been a blast. Uh, I will you. talk to you soon. And yes. for everyone listening, make sure you go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, check this out, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Go to tracyhayes.com, like all of her stuff, watch it. And uh, until next time, folks, be safe, take care of one another. And Tracy, take care of yourself. Thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure meeting you. Pleasure's all mine. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.